want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, it's... 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kulzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, I would ask how it's going, but we went really long last week. Yeah, we gotta get this train moving like immediately. <laughs> we can't let that happen <laughs> again. Uh, there's a lot to cover last week. There's quite a bit to cover this week. It's gonna be, a co- you know, they're gonna be some long podcasts during premiere week. It used to just be, it was premiere week or weeks, but now it's also finale weeks at the same time. Because of all the summer shows, and that's just it's there's too much. It's too much. Mm, it's it's gotten cruel. It's almost like they're trying to make our lives difficult. <laughs> they would have to care for that to be the case. But uh, yes, I hear what you're saying. Um, later in the podcast, we're talking with Mike Warby from Sound on Sight. He's the games editor about Six Feet Under, so people can look forward to that at the end of the podcast. We had fun talking with you guys on on Twitter and at the website. A uh, few comments at the website. Uh, there there was quite a bit of feedback about our Gotham. Uh, review, or more specifically, Simon, yours. And I think that's because people were just relieved to hear from someone who didn't think it was good and more than that, thought it was bad. Because uh, Augustine and Ricky and some of the other people really agreed. Augustine says, Simon, you are absolutely right. The Gotham pilot was really terrible, and this is a Batman fan talking. As a fan, I will continue watching, but it needs to get better real soon. I hope it will. Some key notes. But what Simon said, Ben McKenzie provided the voice of Batman in the animated version of Batman Year One. So you referenced McKenzie's Batman voice. Very nice. Uh, Speaking of gay subtext, Augustine wants to know, did anyone else notice that happening with the Riddler and the Penguin in the Gotham pilot? I don't know if it was intentional or just the actors just displaying the goofiness of the characters, but it was kind of noticeable from my end. Thoughts? Mm, that I don't know about. I, I, I think I think what he's trying to say is that th- some of their sort of more overtly effeminate tics could have been read as, as coded as being gay. I hadn't thought about that. I was really much more weirded out by the whole Barbara Gordon thing. But I suppose it is something that people could pick up on and do something with. Well, there are certainly... I mean, those characters... There are many different representations of them in the comics, of course. Because they've just been around long enough that lots of people have tried their hand at them. But... W- what I always go to, the versions I tend to go back to are, um, when I'm thinking of those characters specifically, tend to be more heightened, over-the-top ridiculous versions. So they tend to be more camp and more uh, just exaggerated in general. So that's what I kind of keyed into it, just the sort of, with both with the Riddler and with Penguin, just more heightened elements to the performance uh, so i was not reading that as intentional subtext but you know who knows yeah i mean i i can't speak to that i will say that uh on top of the other people you just mentioned i i got a little bit of feedback on twitter as well i didn't hear anyone complaining about about my gotham review which was actually hilarious to me because i was sure that we were going to get in a shitstorm for that 
no, not even a little bit. Ricky says, I completely agree with everything Simon said about Gotham. And remember, I am a huge fan of Batman and have thousands of Batman comics. And that's, I think, the main thing I was noticing is that it was hardcore Batman fans who were disappointed, which is not what some expected. Anyways, uh, he says, what a disappointment so far. Hopefully it will get better. Also, the, the Flash pilot makes Gotham look even worse. Uh, the, and of course, the Flash will be uh, premiering from the time this goes up. It'll be next Tuesday. So we'll cover it on the next podcast. Uh, you haven't had a chance to see it yet, but I did enjoy it. I Not as much as others seem to have. I didn't go over the moon, but it's certainly fun. And I think the people who don't like the Gotham pilot will like the Flash pilot. It's very much in keeping with the tone of that of that show. Are you excited for Flash at all? Nah, I'm 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 in a place in in my pop culture consumption existence, as I have been for a while, where it's very hard for me to get excited about a superhero thing, especially one that's connected to a larger narrative and therefore blah, blah. I just, it makes my eyes glaze over no matter how well done it is. I do have some enthusiasm for that. So I will look forward to um, seeing how the flash grows and Gotham as well. Uh, let's see. Ricky also said, I thought this was hilarious because of course this is Ricky D our, our editor in chief general editor of sound on site. Uh, and so I just love his wording here. Also, can you bring back the old intro? This one sort of creeps me out. Thanks. <laughs> As if it was, we just were going to, which we aren't. But uh, I think I appreciate the feedback, Ricky. Yeah, that's not give it another. Well, we change that up every 52 episodes. Yes, every like year or two. We, we change that. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it, it is. I should know. I put those things together. Yeah. And compose the music, as I recall. Yeah. Although it. Frankly, it all comes out kind of mealy when it gets down to 64 kilobytes per second. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Let's see. Carl said, I agree uh, with Sean. The Legend of Korra is worth the risk of a healthy dose of shoe consumption. Uh, Kate, I would love to know what is on your to-do list for TV watching, because I've mentioned that a couple times. Is it on listography.com? No, it is not, Carl, because that would take more time, and I don't have that. However, I do have a list of shows. Orange is the New Black Season 2, Finishing Up Adventure Time Season 5, Utopia Seasons 1 and 2, Banshee Seasons 1 and 2, My Mad Fat Diary, The Bridge Season 2. Uh, I still have like one or two recently in the past couple of years discovered Doctor Who episodes to catch up on, Legend of Korra. Also, oh, I just thought of a couple more earlier today that from this year. Oh, Happy Valley is on there. Um, and there's a couple more. But um, yes, that's currently... What's on the list? It's a long list. I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah, that's there's. I could think of a few more to add on there that you didn't mention that you probably just forgot, but we can't. Yeah, there's, and my list is at least that long. Yeah, uh, Carl's qu answer to the question of the week. I tried the Gotham pilot, but could find no compelling reason to stick around. So he's with you there. And Carl, I look forward to hearing if you watch the Flash pilot. Um, let's see, Brian. You uh, <laughs> just finished Spartacus Vengeance, uh, so that was delightful hearing from you. Yes, Brian, that did just happen. That character did take that other, I guess, character and do that thing over that space. Uh, Yes, it was that awesome. Uh, Teehee. Let's see. Brian also watched Gotham, and he had to watch Batman Year One twice after to calm down. So it's a theme. Mario says the wedding episode of Outlander was hot. That's how I'm translating all caps with exclamation point. Um, or at least Jamie is. I need a romance novel guy. 
I'm watching Outlander because a friend read the books. She's happy uh, with the show. It bounces other shows for me. Um, and I mentioned this specifically because Mo Ryan has a great piece that went up today uh, at as we record at Huffington Post about that episode and um, the female gaze, representations of the female gaze and how rare that is and really the, the relationship of Outlander to a couple of their shows this year or recently and uh, this trend to not demonize female characters for being sexual, even if there are consequences. Um, so it's a great piece. You guys should check it out. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you had a chance to see it yet, Simon. I, I did. Yes. And you're looking at me for, and you're looking at me for thought. Uh, <laughs> I wish you'd seen the face. And uh, well, I mean, Mo Ryan is, is always very astute. I was I was sure I was going to read it and think that I could f- slot another series in there that she hadn't mentioned, but it was it's fairly comprehensive. I mean, she even throws New Girl and a couple other comedies in there, and You're the Worst was in there too. I think those are uh, also good additions to to show that it's sort of a it's a it's a systemic trend, not just a, not just an outlying thing. Yeah, uh, talk to Doctor Who with Carrie, Beth, Jason, and Kyle. Quite a bit of Doctor Who talk at the website as well. We'll get there. Um, I'm just going to also mention here. Coming next week to the podcast, Bad Judge and A to Z. I look forward to your thoughts on that. Selfie as well. Uh, and Stalker. It's coming, people. It's coming. Oh, man. Okay, I know I, I, I like to mention confirmation bias whenever possible. But, you know, I just, I'm I'm sort of looking forward to watching Stalker. Oh, God, I'm not. For all the reasons that you know that I am looking forward to watch. It's, it's been a while since I've had something delectably bad. We'll see how, yeah, I'm just, I, you're looking forward to it for all the reasons I'm dreading it, as my my guess, yeah? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Next week, guys. Next week. Um, I'll also mention here at Sound on Site, there's lots of, you know, premiere coverage going on right now, uh, as well as our, our regular weekly coverage. October is horror month, so we'll be starting up with uh, daily articles, particularly in the film section, but there'll be some TV articles on that theme as well. I updated the DVD shelf list, so there's over a hundred of them, not counting the season spotlights. Holy crap, dude. That's, oh man, that's, that's a lot of time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, n- not just recording them either, but watching those shows. See, just think, any, anytime somebody wants to question your legitimacy as a TV critic, you can just like send them the soundonsite.org slash DVD hyphen shelf hyphen library. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like that time I watched the entirety of Lost for one segment. It was a good segment. It was a very, it was with friend of the show Mo Ryan. Yeah, who is Synergy. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a good segment. Yeah, it was good times. Anyways, I'll also mention here that I was just a guest on Eat the Rudecast this past week. The episode should be coming up, I think, in the next week. I think next Sunday. Um, if not, then the week after. Because if you haven't listened to me talk about Hannibal enough... Or about the season two premiere of Hannibal enough on my own Hannibal podcast. There's like another, you know, maybe even almost two hours of it. Uh, Eddie the Rudecast. It was a lot of fun talking with Ophelia, who was on the course on Televerse last week, as well as Cooper and Miko. So you guys can check that out at eattherudecast.com. Um, that's all of our start of show. There's so much at the end of the show. Like I said earlier, Mike Warby is on to talk six feet under. We're going to keep it shorter this week. I promise. Let's take a break and come back with our week in comedy. You didn't do it, didn't reach your goal. Your heart is broken, you're an asshole. In the end, you didn't have what it takes. 
So here's to you and your huge mistakes. You're humiliated, hollowed out, and exhausted. You were in the ring fighting the fight and you lost it. This isn't your time, this wasn't for you. At least you did everything you could do. You're a loser but a dreamer. You're tired but you're strong. You're going on no evidence. You don't listen to common sense. You went all in and you were wrong. You are such a loser, good for you. It's something that a lot of people can't do. Trying is hard, that's why people don't do it. Losing is hard, they can't make it through it. But not you. You are such a loser. You are such a loser. Here's to you. Cause you deserve a cheering section too. This week in comedy and reality, I'm going to talk briefly about the amazing race premiere and a little Top Chef duels before we dive in with the comedies. Uh, Blackish had its pilot, Gravity Falls, Seuss and the Real Girl, The League when Rafi met Randy, um, and then Sam and I will both chime in on the Brooklyn Nine-Nine premiere, Undercover, the Key and Peel premiere, and then of course Garfunkel and Oates, which had its finality, Maturity. So first... Reality. The Amazing Race had its premiere. I will not be doing The Amazing Race pool this year. I heard from one person who was interested in doing it, and it's too much work and too much effort to keep track of uh, just for a handful of people. So while it is fun, we've enjoyed it in the past, uh, I'm, I'm going to put that on hiatus for now at least. Uh, this premiere had some fun stuff in it. I liked some of the challenges, actually. Uh, the compass thing was a good challenge. It was a good way to balance the th- the stakes and the balance the odds for people based on physical abilities. Um, but again, uh, nice to see a couple elements that I haven't necessarily seen before. Top Chef Duels, I've, I've caught up on some of the recent episodes, and I particularly enjoyed the Stephanie and, uh, and Kristen episode that they had recently. Looking forward to seeing uh, exactly how Last Chance Kitchen or whatever it is plays out for to see how that goes but it's it's been a lot more entertaining than i thought it would be after the first couple episodes so i figured i would mention it again uh here so i'm still watching it and i'm having fun with it but let's get into the comedies i've already given my thoughts on the blackish pilot you haven't had a chance to see it yet simon uh no i'm hoping to catch up with it later though because i've heard mostly good things yeah and i think it's possible because everybody's been praising it i think a lot of the critics uh myself included are praising it based on the pilot but also based on what we think it could be what we're seeing in it. So I think if people went in expecting, it's the best new comedy, they might have been disappointed because there aren't that many laughs in it. But again, like I said before, I think it's very uh, well put together and I like the cast and I think it has potential. Um, Even if, like others have said, I do want there to be more laughs. So fingers crossed that it can channel some of that this next week. Um, And, you know, we'll see. We'll see how things develop. Gravity Falls, Seuss and the Real Girl was one of my favorite episodes of the season. Um, I really hope you get a chance to catch up with this one, Simon, because it was just the notion of a, of a Japanese dating game coming uh, back to life and trying to just possess Seuss, basically, because she's his girlfriend. Uh, it just, was just a lot of fun. Really fun animation there as well. Uh, I'm hoping that that character becomes a recurring figure, his actual girlfriend by the end of the episode. We'll see. Uh, if she recurs, but um, certainly this was much more fun than the league. I just hate Raffi and Randy. It's never funny. I don't know why they couldn't. They just kept them dead. Really? Uh, Lizzie, Lizzie Kaplan shows up for actually a really delightful cameo, uh, like two scenes. Uh, and she's the, by far the best thing about this episode, but I just, those, those characters never work. I, I think the only reason they 
haven't their own episode is because the cast like they can't get the cast for all the episodes of the season but then just have a shorter season the league i don't know i'm i never enjoy those characters when they pop up as much as i like those performers i love them in like pretty much everything else i've seen them in but jason mansukis wonderful on uh enlightened do stuff like that. I want. I want to like your comedy. Uh, anyways, let's let's move on. Let's move swiftly on to the Brooklyn Nine Nine premiere, Undercover, which I thought was a lot of fun. Very glad to be back in this world. How did it work for you? Um, I thought it was okay. Some of the, I think some of the attempts to sort of move on from the cliffhangers they set up for themselves at the end of last season were actually they were pretty much uniformly predictable and a little bit lame, to be honest. Um, that being said, sort of the more broad, general comedic moments uh, do generally land. I mean, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I think at this point, I'm sure we said this last year, it's got its formula down. The fact that it's basically the, the that it's sort of the epitome of, of network sitcom right now is a little bit depressing. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, how so? Because I think it's funny. It it is. It's just so unambitious that it's that it sometimes just like you you know that they could do something more interesting even within the form even without changing it too much, and they just choose not to. Like the, the show is very much in its comfort zone and it never really ever leaves, and that's fine. But I sometimes wish they would push it a little bit more. You know what I mean? I think I know what you're saying. Um, except that this is a premiere, and unless you're going to take the show in a completely different direction. This is welcome back to our show. So I think it's No, I know. I'm 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 speaking more generally. I mean just in terms of we know what Michael Schur can do and we know what a, a lot of very funny people on this show can do and are capable of creatively and I just get the sense that they're n probably not going to take any any huge risk this season. We were happy with what ha what they did with um Amy and Peralta in the finale. Uh that gets addressed here, but um they seem to be going a more stereotypical route with it, which is disappointing. I'll definitely give you that. But for me, just the, the, the group dynamic works really well. And I think they've done such a good job of fleshing out each of the individual characters in the first season that I'm looking forward to them hopefully coming up with new things in the second season. I don't need to see a Chelsea Peretti and uh, Jill Trulio thing as a recurring theme throughout the season. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in the relationship antics in general on this show. Yeah, that, I think that's one of the things I'm sort of disappointed by is leaning on couplings between wacky characters because that's always funny. Um, that's sort of the least interesting tack I think they can take with the ensemble. I will say that we get the addition of Jenny Slate this week who may or may not sort of be a, like, you know, a, a recurring bit player or whatever, and she's hilarious. She's been so great on Married, and I actually really need to see Obvious Child. But anyway, so that was nice to see. But other than that, it was pretty standard Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Well, let's move on to Key and Peel. Was this standard Key and Peel for you? Because again, we talked a little bit about this. I think I like this one more than you t you did as well. You probably did. I mean, Key and Peel sketch comedy, and you know, this is the most polished sketch show on right now, at least in terms of production values, if not always in terms of landing every single joke or every single concept. And it's always a joy when a new season starts to to really get get back into those strangely high production values and and their fantastic acting and voice work and the makeup and the there's a level of gleeful comic indulgence to what they do that just no one else really gets to do 
That being said, I think that there was really only one all-timer sketch in here for them, which was the the post-apocalyptic landscape sketch where they're with the alien test as opposed to... Anyway, I've already (laughs) spent too many words explaining what that sketch is. That was really funny. There was a couple other like quasi funny ones, and 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 basically the rest kind of fell flat for me. I'm I'm also not totally convinced by the notion of it seems like what they're doing is replacing the audience bits with sort of filmed parody bits. And this this week it was True Detective. I don't know if they're going to do that every week or if it was just a one off for the premiere. But I'm I wasn't so into it. Like I I didn't mind those segments, but I, I much prefer the sort of more spontaneous feel of the of the audience scenes. I was good with it. I thought it was it was funny and you know f- all time best maybe not, but you know I was laughing all the way through this episode. I enjoyed most of the sketches. I thought most of them really did work, and uh, it's just nice to see them. And I've heard this other people comment on this as well, but it's nice to see them go to create some, some new sketches instead of re- returning to, especially in a premiere, to to not see the the substitute teacher and to not see um liam neeson's and you know to to see them branching out and and making new sketches and new characters i think that was a particularly a nice move or a it's it's encouraging for me that that's what they choose to do in the premiere Mm -hmm. i do worry about them stretching themselves thin they've got a longer season this year 22 episodes they're also apparently writing a film based around the substitute teacher which is why you may not see him as much uh, and, you know, doing some other things as well. They've also been, you know, doing random things like showing up on Fargo, which who knows, maybe they'll, they'll do some more acting on, on other things as well. They're obviously insanely talented guys, and I'm, I'm hoping that they'll be, they can kick it up a notch a little bit more often in some of the other episodes, and I'm sure they will. There's already really positive buzz about the next episode, and I'm just very glad to have Keen Peel back in my TV life. Um, let's move on, though, to our last episode that we're talking about here uh, in our Week in Comedy. That's the Garfunkel and Oates finale, Maturity. Now, d- you watched this episode. Did you see any of the rest of Garfunkel and Oates or just this episode? No, this is kind of a weird one. I only watched the finale, which I don't think I've ever done with a show before. So way to go, Garfunkel and Oates. Uh, I mean, was this a, a highly representative episode? Because I thought it was okay, but there, the, the show has some stylistic flourishes I'm, I don't think are that great. I think they could probably stand to lose. Such as? The animation. I don't like the animation. Uh, the, the Of Mice and Men thing was kind of cute, but this notion of taking you away, visually at least, from the main characters for minutes at a time in service of particularly a song, I don't know. I feel like that detaches you, at, at, especially at this point point in the story where you should you should be more attached to them and you should be involved more more directly involved as a viewer in their life because you know there's stuff happening uh so yeah i mean do you like the animation oh well i thought it was really funny so yeah that that really worked for me uh the the, the, oh man the notion of losing her eggs or the the good eggs going um yeah but you see for me and, and this is i think the only time they've done animation in the season. Oh, there you go. Yeah, they've done uh, puppets. Oh, no, they had the apple thing, but it was like a dream that the character was having, and it was shorter. Uh, that's the only extended animation that at least that, that's coming to mind right now. They do have the songs that they do, but usually uh, Ricky Lindholm and Kate Mikuchi feature in those. And actually, because this is the finale, I think they can take more time away from our leads, at least having them visually on screen, because we they've already established those characters through the first seven episodes of the season and gotten you invested in them, especially because this was a 
the I guess it was a part two of two. It's the only two parter ish thing they've done. And certainly the mm-hmm. themes this was a more serious by far the more more serious of the episodes of the season. Um with this, you know, there's actually like a moment that they share, uh, you know, looking at their futures and what does that mean. Uh certainly it's more reflective and uh thoughtful than the mo- the rest of the season's been a bit more irreverent, I would say. Mm-hmm. In general, uh, like I sort of said before, I, I think the show's okay. I th- they're they're both very appealing performers. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily as funny as comedic actresses as some other leads we've had on other sort of breakout comedies. The uh, there's there's very clearly an effort to balance sort of the twee the the very overt twee sensibility of the show with raunchier humor and. Sometimes that blend works really nicely, and other times it kind of lands too far one direction or the other for me, and they they don't always get that balance right. But I could see it uh, getting really good, uh, and and perhaps other other episodes of of the uh, of the season have gotten that balance right. For me, the premiere didn't quite land all that stuff. I think that that awareness of the twee elements I think is really key, and that's what separates this from like a Portlandia for me. Or, or even at times, new girl, <laughs> and and I've really been had fun with this season, um, and I'm looking for. I'm hoping. I actually, I'm not sure. Do you know if it got a season two? Because I'm, I'm hoping it did. I'd love to see more. I don't know, but did you just accuse Portlandia of not being self-aware enough? No, it's not counter. What I mean is not counterbalancing some of the 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 more Portlandia tone elements. Is if that makes sense with other things? With yeah, other okay, things. I, I see what you mean. Okay, yeah. okay, I was I was a little bit confused. Yeah, no, they definitely know the show that they're making at Portlandia. Obviously, they're very aware of of what they're making and 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 how people like myself will react to it. And that show is just not for me, and that's totally cool. They don't need me in their viewership. They're doing just <laughs> fine without me. Um, so yeah, any final thoughts on Garfunkel notes? Do you think you'll make any time to go back and watch other episodes, or just maybe tune in if there's a season two? I think I'll, I'll. I think that's probably what will happen. I'm still waiting for IFC to have. I mean, I know a lot of people think that Portlandia is that great series. It's never really done it for me either. I'm waiting for IFC to have that breakout because they are. They have devoted themselves to making sort of alt comedy series, and I think it's a great idea. They just haven't, for me, perfected any sort of formula yet. Well, then, what wins your week in comedy? Oh. Um, you know, I just because I'm so happy to have them back, even though it wasn't a fantastic episode, I'll give it to Key and Peele. Um, I, I'm, t- I'm torn here. I want to go, uh, Gravity Falls or Garfunkel and Oates or Key and Peele. Those are the three that are like sifting to the top for me. You did Key and Peele, so I will, I will give it to Garfunkel and Oates. Uh, fair, bid them a fond farewell. I've enjoyed the season quite a bit and certainly a lot more than I expected to. Um, and hopefully it's not the end. Um, now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in genre. Sing me a song of a lass that is gone. Say could that lass be I. Mary of soul, she sailed on a day. Over the sea to sky Billow and breeze Islands and seas Mountains of rain and sun All that was good All that was fair All that was mean 
This week in genre, I'll talk briefly about the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. premiere, Shadows, a little bit about Doctor Who, The Caretaker, and Sleepy Hollow, The Kindred, before we dive in a little bit more with Person of Interest, uh, Panopticon, and then really the meat of this section will be our discussion of the Outlander mid-season finale, both sides now, as well as a little bit probably more talk of this half-season as a whole. Um, First, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. came back with Shadows, and I thought it was fun, and certainly continues in a more positive Positive direction. I like that they have Patton Oswalt back. I think that was such a good move in the finale, and I liked. It's nice to see him pop up here. No sense, but in from this, how present he will be in the season. But somebody's gonna snap him up for a weekly role somewhere, and that show's gonna be really much better off than it is now. If if by some show you mean some show other than the heart she holler some show other than the heart she holler hey i think he adds a lot to the heart she holler as well i'm just saying <laughs> he does a regular pat oswald in your cast especially if you let him be dramatic as well as comedic is a big plus in in, in your column um anyways other things about this episode um the there's some good stuff with uh, i like how they've sort of restructured the team a little bit i mean if you bring in lucy lawless i'm gonna be a happy kate so i'm hoping she's not dead even though it really seems like she is if she's dead a complete waste of the actress if not maybe they're setting up her as a villain for later uh, that could be fun um but yeah i think this is a good direction for the show uh, certainly not must see TV or anything. I don't think you missed anything, Simon, by not watching this one. Um, but certainly it looks to be continuing in the correct direction of the end of season one. So that's that's encouraging. Doctor Who, the caretaker. This episode, uh, I have my reviews up at Sound On Sight and uh, there's there have only been a few comments. There's been a little bit of back and forth, but only really a few comments. I would love to get more comments from people because basically in my review, I call the doctor an asshole and I'm tired of it. Uh, I don't need this. The doctor can be a jerk. That's t- I'm totally cool with the doctor being a jerk. What I'm not okay with is him being utterly disrespectful of his companion, which is something that the 11th doctor did all the time with Clara, just constantly with Clara. And then that shifted uh, significantly with the introduction of the 12th doctor the the dynamic between the two of them has been much more equal and respectful and then that goes out the window at the end of last week's episode and then here again we have this possessive controlling you you must explain your relationship decisions to me because i and, and the, the issue is that the show isn't condemning the doctor if the show was saying and he's wrong for acting this way but he is because he's just a jerk sometimes that would be fine the show is on his side and that's my problem. Um, so anyways, that element of this episode really was distracting for me. And it's too bad because there was a lot here to like. Um, Sam An- Samuel Anderson continues to be an excellent addition as Danny Pink. I'm hoping he'll be around a bit, bit more. I really wish that the doctor would stop randomly hitting soldiers considering he's never hated them in the past. And that's just a contrived reason for the doctor to not like Danny Pink so that we, there can be conflict with him and Clara. Um, I'm really not excited about all the things that are being teased for the season arc as a whole, but there's, there's fun here. I like the Courtney character. She's a way better version of Clara's kids that she was babysitting from last season. I'm glad that she'll be back next week, um, at least based on the next week's next week on teaser. And uh, the monster was fun. Can't be cheesy fun, but fun nonetheless. And there was some good comedy in here as well. So it's just really, I'm, I don't trust Moffat at all. So I'm not willing to give him any leeway uh, when he starts having the doctor uh, do things like demand an explanation for how she could possibly be dating this former soldier who is awesome. Um, Yeah, it's, (laughs) 
that's where I'm at with Doctor Who right now. Let me know what you think. I would love to hear. I mean, let me know I'm being an idiot. I I'm, I can take it. Uh, let, let me know you're frustrated too. Whatever. At soundonsite.org. Find my review over in the TV section. And we can talk about it more there. Uh, Sleepy Hollow the Kindred, which <laughs> Les, uh, who reviews it for us at Sound On Sight, uh, called it a Frankenstein monster, which I think was just adorable and very appropriate. Uh, this is... we've People have seen the Gollum or Golem character before. This is not a new idea, but I like this version of it for Sleepy Hollow. I like that they uh, don't tease out or stretch out the Ichabod and his wife reunion. I like that they keep them apart, but have them confer on it and make it an equal decision. That's very respectful of them. Uh, I also like the way that they, they incorporate the, the, I mean, it's the new sheriff character is the character we've all seen before, but at least that should change things up a little bit. We'll see how long that sticks. Hopefully it'll change quickly really like that actress on house of cards so glad to see her pop up here and hopefully what they're giving orlando jones here will will give uh at the end of the episode will give him and john noble more to do all in all another fun episode of sleepy hollow you're hopefully going to get to catch up with it so we can talk about it next week but for now person of interest panopticon how, how much person of interest have you seen I've I've seen a couple of random episodes from the first two seasons like literally a couple like two and I've now seen this fourth season premiere, so, you know, take everything I say with a huge grain of salt. I don't get person of interest. I don't get people who say that it's, you know, sly and secretly subversive and, you know, one of the most daring shows on TV, but no one's talking about the fact that it's like, ah, I don't really buy that premise. I just don't. Like, just because was the show ahead of its time when they started it in terms of, you know really diving into the surveillance state maybe are they still i don't really think so um the whole bad guy of the week concept which i don't know how much they lean on but they lean on it fairly heavily in this episode uh is really corny and i especially the whole kidnap of son aspect was just it felt like i may as well be watching the littlest hobo except it's jim caviezel kicking everyone's ass um i don't know i mean what am i not seeing here Having watched seasons two and three of uh, Person of Interest and a couple from season one as well, um, there, I, I really think this is a show that got, that really found its groove at the end of season two, beginning of season three, and has become significantly less interesting since then. Uh, this, the, the premiere, there's elements here that are fun. I think they're supposed to be fun. You're like, oh, imagine if Shaw had to be a perfume girl, you know, but I just, I am less interested in this version of the show as they expand out and take the issues of the show to a larger and larger scale. In this case, now they have to save the world from this surveillance state, uh, evil computer thingy mabopper. Um, that is far less interesting than the incredibly personal stakes of what the show, uh, had as its conflict with dirty cops and everything earlier on in the run. And there's only there's only so long, far they could stretch that before you've just taken down the dirty cops and you need a new villain. However, escalating everything, which is exactly what I know a lot of people are very excited about and what they really liked about the end of season three. That's exactly what has me less interested. I think this episode is fine, but I certainly don't think it's among the more memorable of the week or this certainly of the premieres. I just want to add also, like, the, the, again, I'm only going from what I've seen from what I'm seeing in this premiere, but 
so there's so we start off seeing our one ginormous evil basically counting machine that do, that you know is sort of like precognitively does stuff but is evil and then there's another machine that's not evil or markedly less evil and i don't know this to me like sounds like a recipe for deus ex mocking a disaster happening all over the place later this season is that just me well i think they did a good job of establishing all of that last season and really um exploring the differences between uh samaritan and the machine samaritan being the one that's all flashy red and bad and the machine being you know what Amy Acker calls her or her character calls her or God. Um, and, and that's the notion that there is no, uh, there's no way to control the machine. It's completely independent. Whereas Samaritan uh, follows orders and also Samaritan's like, cool, we can kill people. Sure. Uh, which is again, because that's how it was designed to be able to be controlled by someone. And is again, it, it ties in, in an interesting way to this notion that people are fallible and people can manipulate and be greedy and want to kill everybody in a way that theoretically the machine doesn't, um, uh, because that's not how it's programmed and specifically because it kind of, um, imprinted on the, uh, Michael Emerson character. And that's just so not him that that's what it learned as its core priorities was always saving and helping. So it doesn't do that. And there's an episode in the previous season where it ha tells them to, the, the machine tells them to kill somebody basically because it would prevent killing that person would, you know, greater good and all that kind of a thing, which is supremely disturbing to the Michael Emerson character, which is why he's in the position he's in, in this episode. So there is some really interesting stuff going on there i just don't think it's necessarily in this premiere because it's so much more plot heavy which is sort of necessitated by going to such a large global scale fair enough i i hate to mention a plot hole in an episode where we really have to move on really quickly but i don't know if this occurred to you also but samaritan can see everything and you know that at some point you know when you see that compute that phone network they set up that that's what they're going to be and end up using by the end of the episode mm -hmm. so that they can communicate with each other but if their cameras can see that these people are talking on phones that they can't hear the computer's not going to think that's weird well i the main thing is that um i don't know that the phone the video scanning and the audio scanning are connected i think it's just like they are looking at stuff and they're listening to stuff but there are two separate processes because usually security cameras don't have audio. But also, separate from that, the they managed at the end of last season to get a bug into Samaritan so that their faces have been deleted. Yeah, that part was clear. Yeah. So so at least there's that. So yeah, it's like they, I don't know. They don't, it doesn't even register them. So therefore, it wouldn't necessarily register that they're on a phone that they can't hear. Because it's right. not, because there's so much information that they can hide in plain sight then. Fair enough. All right, I could accept that. Anyway, person of interest. Maybe if I if I hear it has a particularly great or resonant or actually subversive episode. I I think also. Sorry again, but this the, the, me reading people calling the show subversive and then you know having an episode where they chase down a bunch of chase down and you know gun down a bunch of black drug dealers, including Marlo from the Wire. Is like ah, this is subversive, guys. Really. Anyway. On that note, let's go to the Outlander midseason finale, both sides now. Um, I gotta say, I'm curious how this episode worked for you. 
not having seen the the premiere and not having necessarily gotten that Claire and Frank uh, relationship established as firmly for you as it was for those of us who were able to see the whole thing. They got me when they're yelling at each other across time or whatever. I'm like, this is super cheesy, but I don't care. I'm invested. I like, I don't think she's going to end up in the future again or with her husband because it's the mid season finale of season one. Come on guys. Uh, but I, I still thought it was super effective. Did that work for you? Uh, I mean, I wasn't tearing up or anything, but I think for such a, an inherently corny concept, I think it is, it's a well, uh, it's a well built up to, and then well executed sequence. I feel like they have to bring him to the past at some point. Really? Like it's just going to have to happen. I, I kind of, I mean, otherwise, Either either they bring him to the past at some point, or we check in on him less. Uh, because I mean, I don't know how much he's shown up, but like, how much more story can there really be other than him just being really sad? This is by far the most time we spent with him because it, okay. we've only ever seen him before this episode in the flashbacks. We've not seen his you know his point of view uh, in this way. So this was certainly a change of pace for them. Um, what I would anticipate not having read any of the books and not knowing what comes next uh, is that she will, I mean, first of all, she's got to end up pregnant at some point, right? Just, just, just by math. Yeah, she really does. I could see that further tying her to Jamie and then ending up back in the present, but then she's got to go and, and just really establishing these two worlds and having her travel back and forth. That's what I would anticipate. But, um, you know, like, or so she ends up in the present again. She's so happy to see her husband, but she has to get back to her kid or something. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm sure you and I both had the thought during that sequence of, but she's in the past. This, this already happened. <laughs> so how could you be just hearing it while, like, why is this happening? I, I, magic, I definitely stones. Had that. Yeah, magic, magic stones. Yeah, magic stones. <laughs> magic stones. So, but I... I, I wasn't quite ever able to get that out of my brain. Maybe that was just me. Okay. But, I mean, it's not really the show's fault. It's just my – I'm unable to, you know, always put that – turn that part of my brain off. Uh, between last week's Outlander, this week's Outlander, and this week's Masters of Sex, I'm almost – I'm almost like Rivers Cuomo in the early 90s. I'm almost tired of sex. Like, even the really well-shot stuff and, you know, the interestingly shot stuff with, you know, the female gaze component that Mo Ryan was talked about – I, I think I'm good with less sex next week. Is that just me? Well, how how much is less sex and less less nudity? Ah, uh, both. Uh huh. I I feel like I, I'm I've seen so many beautiful bodies well photographed in like quasi erotic lighting that it really does. It's getting a little softcore out there. See, but I love how not sexy the nudity is in this episode. At least for me, I just I didn't think it was sexy lighting or anything in this. No, that's true. That's I I think I'm mostly just still I I watched Masters of Sex a little bit more recently and there was so much of it in the finale. But anyway, we'll get there. <laughs> um, no, you're right, and I th the show is always very sensitive in in terms of the way it. I mean, we get uh, two almost rapes this week, which was a lot, uh, but it's never you know they're they're very careful about the way the, the way they film those sequences to not be accidentally irresponsible even mm -hmm. which you know i'm sure we'll get to stuff about that next week at some point but uh <laughs> yeah i mean in terms of my feelings on the show in general i i still think i'm glad that it's on 
is it like a close personal favorite that I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about when I'm not watching it? Probably not, but there's absolutely nothing even remotely like it around. So that's always a great thing to have. I was thinking about the fact that she is nearly raped twice in this episode. Um, or we, I guess we don't technically know how nearly or just is, um, but it, to be completely honest, but I think, and I was like, that's, it seems like it's excessive. Are we really doing this again? But it occurred to me, they knew they wanted to end the episode how they did. And so therefore I think they needed to have the earlier, uh, rape attempt because she needed to get herself out of one of them. Otherwise it would be her constantly being saved specifically by Jamie, but also, also, but just by men, you know, just in the nick of time, uh, uh, luckily another mm -hmm. guy comes in. So I think it's very important that we see her kill the, one of her assailants and save Jamie at the same time. Yeah. I mean, again, they're clearly thinking very consciously about those decisions. I mean, at a certain point, like if, if, if you're in, if, I I don't really have, I didn't really have an issue with having two rape sequences in this episode or almost rapes or whatever, because, you know, that would, that would be a reality of the situation, we can assume. I mean, you and I haven't spent much time in the setting, as in none, <laughs> but for, but based on the historical record, we can assume that someone in this, in this particular predicament would be faced with this basically all of the time. And it's a hard thing to have to put in your show. So if you're going to do it, you may as well do it right. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I also really like that they don't shy away from her decision to kill her assailant either. It's not something that she's like, it's not instinctual. You can, we see her choose to do it and we mm -hmm. see her steal herself to do it as well. And I think that was a very interesting choice for them. And then we see the shock and it's at least based for me, it seems like it was not merely shock of almost being raped or being raped, but also of the fact that she killed somebody. And I really like for a show that has had as much, not super amounts of violence, but this is a character who's been in the, you know, in the trenches. I think she gets sent off to the front line, as I recall, to be a doctor. So she's been surrounded by blood and death a lot. And so to have her be this affected by what happens to her and what she does, as well as what, you know, her assailant does, I think was really interesting and very well executed. I actually got the impression that she was mostly reacting to the fact that she'd killed that guy. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, I, I, I like the idea that she, because of her training, she's able to not necessarily talk herself through the process of being in shock, but is able to recognize that that's what's happening. And that at least is able to give her a little bit of an edge when mm -hmm. dealing with the situation, but not so much that she's just totally cool and collected. They have, they found a really nice balance with that. Definitely. And, uh, you know, it's, there, other stuff did happen in this episode. It's a little convenient that, of course, as soon as they give her a knife and as soon as they show her how to use it, that instant it comes up. But, uh, you know, it, it's, I think you couldn't have put that scene earlier in the season. It would not have felt, it wouldn't have been appropriate because they didn't trust her enough. And uh, in general, I think this is, as a finale, I was surprised to spend as much time as we did in the present with Frank. Um, and to really see that, I really loved how it was like, no, I don't think she got swept up into time. You know, I think they they did a good job balancing that as well. Um, but I think it's a good mid-season finale. It certainly has uh, me very ready to come back. And um, I would have rather maybe we ended with her being carted off than where we end. But um, 
hey, it's a little swashbuckle never hurt your mid-season cliffhanger. No, probably not. Uh, the last thing I wanted to mention since you brought up Frank is my favorite detail about that scene where he is told, you know, the... Um, the plot. Uh, the, 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 the plot, the magical version of events. He he doesn't have that magic, that moment of, oh, he doesn't have a moment of revelation like you think he might, but he also isn't totally dismissive either. He just, he says, you know what? I, that's, that's another version of events. I think he says, I don't share your beliefs, but he doesn't take offense. He's not a dick about it. Mm -hmm. That was kind of a nice touch. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a fun mid season and the show will be back in April, I believe is the mid season premiere. Uh, I want to say early April. So we'll talk more about it then when it comes back. But for now, uh, <laughs> For you, it's uh, such so many choices here, but what wins your week in genre? Um, the Doctor Who comments. <laughs> uh, no, and we, I'll, 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 I'll keep it to Outlander. Yeah, and I will as well. Want to sit in on the first song? Keep my own. All right. Go to the Mardi Gras. Be flat. <laughs> This week in drama, I'm going to talk briefly, very briefly, once again, about the NCIS New Orleans pilot, musician Heal Thyself, the Scandal premiere, Randy Red, Super Freakin' Julia, Boardwalk Empire, Quanto, I probably said that wrong, um, Parenthood had its premiere as well, Vegas, then we'll talk The Nick, Get the Rope, The Good Wife, Trust Issues, and The Masters of Sex Season 2 finale, The Revolution will not be televised. There's a lot of drama here. Speed round here at the top. Uh, NCS New Orleans had its pilot. I watched it because I watch all of them. Um, yeah, this show is just not good. It's just when they have, it's like they, they need to in, feel the need to introduce the show with um, shrimp boats and then a mention of gumbo and then a, then a jazz musician <laughs> friend of Scott Bakula. And we find at the end that he also plays some jazz piano. Uh, I, I thought they might have him sing because Bakula sings, but, uh, but no. Uh, <laughs> and there's also a description of how the different neighborhoods in New Orleans say who you are, really define who you are as a New Orleaner, a New Orleanian. I don't know. Um, because, of course, one of the members of the team has just moved into town. I mean, it's just, I mean, come on. At one point, it's like, watching this show as a New Orleanian has got to be just hilarious or offensive or just both. I, I don't know, but um, it's not anywhere near interesting or good enough. I, you could watch this or you could watch NCIS. Why would you watch this instead? I guess they're they're hoping that you'll watch both. Is there any percent chance you would watch an NCIS New Orleans episode? Um, I don't think I'm really the target demo. Yeah, I'm not either. Uh, so I guess I this really is, is pointless. I was hoping to like it more just because I, I enjoy Scott Bakula so much. But really, what's like what they're setting up with uh, the Steven Weber character? Like, these these are all actors I'm glad are getting a network paycheck. That's awesome. Go them. But I mean, really, when they got the the musician who's um, <laughs> whose son is dead and he can't play because he's so emotional. But at the end they find out he did it. And then, then he can play the same day. 
and and and, oh, and they play when you go to new orleans you got to go to the mardi gras they're playing in like an upbeat party song it's like your son is still dead <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah okay we get it yeah it's not funny but it's, it's not offensive but it's just like really anyway so that's ncis new orleans scandal it had its premiere i thought it, it was good and fun and certainly uh, hilarious to think about in context with that ridiculous <laughs> getaway with murder um, article we talked about last week. But um, what I keep coming back to for this, and by the way, Drunk Melly is delightful and she's fabulous in this. Once again, love her, love the performer. Uh, we'll I'll talk a little bit about that with Boardwalk Empire as well, but absolutely fabulous. Loved her here. Um, however, I just keep getting going back to... I don't think I can really enjoy the show because I hate Olivia and Fitz as a couple and the show is just wedded to that idea. There's a shot at the end where they walk past each other and they 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 don't brush fingers but they look like after they've passed each other that they like slightly reach out and then they see like a shot of like a slight quasi half almost start of a smile from them. It's like no. I am not, it's, it's, it's a terrible coupling on the show and they're so committed to it that it just sinks any potential enjoyment I can get really out of the Liv character. I can't really respect her at a certain point because she keeps doing the same stupid shit. Um, and I don't care how many times you lampshade it, scandal premiere. I don't care how many times you, you have, uh, the chief of staff and Melly say, yes, we all know what's going to happen. Keep having it happen. And so... I can't enjoy the show. It's like a, it's a make or break for me, I guess. But um, otherwise, it's a fun episode. Uh, I like some of the directions of where they're going, but I doubt I'll, I'll check in with this one just for that reason. Uh, remind me, you and Scandal, have you tried the show? Oh, we did. We did this exact thing one whole season ago, and <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it was, and it also involved Drunk Melly, and yeah, we've we've had this conversation before. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I would like to hear from people who love the show. Uh, if there are people who love the show who hate the Olivia and, and Fitz stuff as much as I do, let me know how you enjoy the show, How like what you do to enjoy it, because I would like to know, because I'd like to enjoy it, because the rest of it's pretty fun. Um, I already talked about how to get away with murder last week, so we're going to move swiftly on to Boardwalk Empire and just say, oh, drunk Margaret. It's got to <laughs> be my favorite Margaret. Uh, Kelly McDonald is a treasure and she's absolutely delightful in this episode. If there's any one thing that makes me want to go back and check out earlier seasons of the show, it's this episode and getting to watch her with Nucky, uh, Margaret with Nucky. However, I have a feeling that this Margaret is very different than the Margaret who was interacting with him before because it's been so much time and she left his left him. And uh, so she's got to be a very different character, but she's so much fun here. Uh, I'm going to not say much more than that because you haven't had a chance to see it yet. And I don't want to spoil you, but I think uh, several other characters get memorable scenes. I really like <laughs> what they do with Mueller here. Especially his line about um, needing to find a restroom, as I'll say about that. And a sad farewell to a character I hoped would be in more episodes. Um, yes. <laughs> All right. I guess I get to hear, I get to figure out what that is later. I, I mean, uh, yeah, you're not going to get the Margaret you're hoping for in the early seasons. She's much meeker for the most part. 
But uh, you know what? As soon as the show's over, if anyone wants to give Kelly McDonald her own show, or for that matter, Michael Shannon, or both of them, please <gasps> do it. Because they're... <laughs> yeah. True Detective Season 3. Anyway. Oh, my God. Don't even say that. That, that would be just... <laughs> the That is so much more awesome. There's no comparison. Just, just recast. You know. It's not even about the cast. It's about, let's just give them a different show. Different showrunner. You know. How about After <laughs> Justified Ends? Boom. Graham, Graham Yost, yeah? Let's make that happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on to, to the episodes that we've both seen. So, Parenthood had its premiere, Vegas. My review is up at Sound on Sight. And basically, the gist of my premiere is, yeah, it's Parenthood. Yeah, did you read that Javier Grillo Marquash uh, piece about how all 98% of all the great American dramas or, you know, series of the last 20 years are really about divorce? Interesting. No, I have not, but I will check that out. Or, or or are reflective of the children of divorce getting to make their own pop culture because when you really think about it, they're all basically about bad parents, whether the parents are the state or actual parents or whatever. Not um, Friday Night Lights! Uh, and, and exactly, the two exceptions were Parenthood and Friday Night Lights, and literally there are no <laughs> other exceptions. <laughs> and so there, there will always be a, a place for Parenthood because it's doing something that nothing else that's on right now is really doing, at least not in the realm of drama. Um, it was a, it was a perfectly fine premiere. I didn't, I figured they were going to pull something like what they did with Zeke, but the way it was staged was really effective, I think. And I like that they still have their fun night in Vegas afterwards. That was, that was a really nice touch. Uh, so there's a Zeke death, there's a Zeke death countdown clock now, right? Are they going to hold out for the finale? Are they going to do it a little bit earlier? It'll be either the finale or like a couple episodes before but it's like, so, and Todd Vanderwerf talked about this. I think it was him somewhere else. So what's the over-under on uh, pregnancy or, or birth death finale moments or like death of Zeke and then a new generation is born and everybody can come together over the birth of the great-granddaughter son? Yeah, like maybe they kill because they're they're doing thirteen episodes. It's like they kill yeah. Zeke in ten, and then maybe the kid's born in the finale. Uh, if if I was gonna do it, I would actually just have both of those things things happen in one ridiculously mm. manipulative closing montage for the whole series. But you know, I'm evil that way. I do think now that you say that, I think they need that's what they're gonna do ten and thirteen because then in thirteen when they're holding the baby, they just I wish they got to meet their grandfather. You know, they can do that and have a slight moment with Bonnie Bedelia, you know, and then wipe away a tear. But they all love each other so much. God, we're really not giving Jason Kadams a lot of credit right now. <laughs> well, but that's the thing. This is a show that is, and I wrote this in my review. It's. Even when they have Zeke fall over with a heart attack or something, and they uh, they have um, Amber not sure what she's going to do about her pregnancy, though, come on, we all know what she's going to do. Um, this is still an incredibly comfortable show. This mm-hmm. is like the... <laughs> this is the family drama version of NCIS. So... This this is not a show that does out of nowhere things. They did that with uh, Christina and, and Cancer. So like, was there any doubt that Max was going to show up for school? No. No, he's always definitely going to show up for school. I mean, like, you don't watch the show to be surprised. You watch the show to deliver basically what we're expecting because it feels in keeping with the characters and uh, in keeping with a lot of people's experiences of family, um, but just executed very well. That's why you watch this show. 
And they did that. Mm -hmm. They did. And Zeke's going to die. And Zeke's uh, totally going to die. Zeke, Zeke's totally going to die. Uh, and Any final thoughts? Any final thoughts? Uh, not really. Um, nothing. You know, I'm always happy when Parenthood doesn't do anything offensively stupid because it does do that from time to time, and it didn't do that this week. So that's always cause for celebration. Let's move on swiftly, though, to the Nick Get the Rope. I think this was the most uh, energetic and entertaining episode of the season. Um, certainly it's very much on the rah-rah side of things and you have all, you have the doctors, the surgeons all banding together against racism. So, I mean, come on. Uh, but I thought it was really fun. How did this episode work for you? Fun is a weird description considering all the brutal near lynchings we get to watch. Uh, I mean, I think the reason, uh, this episode feels uh, so great is, I mean, just as a viewing experience is because it's really a showcase for Soderbergh's direction more than, even more than the rest of the show, which kind of already does that. We just get so many visuals that no other, no other person making television right now, at least would think to give us like that amazing shot of Algernon when he's under the sheet and we just stay with him the whole time while we hear people walk by and question what's going on and the nurse comes up with a great idea to keep them away and we're we're under there for maybe a full minute while that's happening just watching him react and i mean yes technically it's easier than getting you know than getting a whole bunch of exterior shots with the questioning and intercutting between the two things theoretically that sounds easier but just watching him squirm under there is way more compelling and way more suspenseful and or just little shots here and there like a like when we get just to just to watch one of the electric lampposts in the rain for a while, just beautiful, beautiful moments like that. And of course, we can't have to mention the score every week. Uh, is it a little bit contrived that now they're all fighting racism? <laughs> yeah, it is. And I'm hoping that they do get a little bit of an overhaul in the writing department next next year because the Nick doesn't feel or look or sound like anything else on TV. But it is written like some other things on TV, which is kind of annoying. Any thoughts on the uh, the various couplings at the end of the of the episode? I think they also earned those with just how intense the rest of the episode was. Well, that, but also I think especially the way I was dreading that the sequence with with uh, Thack and the nurse, whose name I'm, I I don't forget. Sorry, you're very pretty, but I don't remember your name. Lucy. Um, Lucy. There you go. Um, I, but. I actually thought that whole sequence was really striking, mostly because it didn't feel like a coupling, really. It just sort of felt like it was something that she wanted to try. And, you know, she ends, she ends the episode with a smile, which I was not expecting. You know, you're expecting this very brooding sort of scene, especially after we get that long sequence of her doing her what we now know is her morning routine, which does way more to humanize her as a character than anything has, has ever happened. And that, I don't know, the whole sequence, it's its kind of ambiguous, but it doesn't have that, you know, you're dreading that, like you say, coupling the whole time, and it doesn't have any sense of, of definitiveness to it. It's just sort of a thing that happens, and she reacts in this very naturalistic way, and that's the sort of grace note that I'm hoping the show does a lot more often. And I'm not sure if this is exactly what they were going for, but what I was seeing in that sequence was... She's got, you know, she's basically ready to do walk of shame face, right? As she's looking in the mirror and we see her look, she appears to be regretful and she like doesn't want to look at herself in the mirror. But once she's put herself back together and this can be her secret because she's composed again, she's herself again, 
she's very happy to have it. Um, I thought that was a very interesting choice to not just go straight up like, woohoo, or, but kind of let her experience both sides of things before really deciding how she feels in that last shot. Yeah, I agree. And the Algernon and the Algernon thing was just really sweet. I thought. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to the good wife trust issues and your reviews up at Sound on Sight. What did you think? Yeah, not as striking as last week, but uh, still some really good stuff here and there. Uh, let's to get the bad stuff out of the way. Do you remember anything about the case of the week this week? Because even while I was watching it, I was forgetting it. Oh, I certainly do, because I absolutely enjoy what the Carrie with an E and Alicia stuff, pretending that I have anything to add. Yes. I mean, I thought that stuff was great, uh, especially the way it recurred through uh, the later scenes, where you think that, you think that she's keying into Alicia and being more like, yeah, girl power, and then later on, she's right back, because that's just a quirk of who that person is while she does not go by her husband's name, which I think is a fun little detail as well. So yeah, I was, I was enjoying that element to it, but really like you're, you're saying this is all about uh, Carrie. Are you glad to have uh, Diane fully on board? Uh, I think so. I mean, I'm very curious to see how much time we now spend in whatever they're going to be calling Lockhart Gardner now. Uh, which obviously won't be Lockhart Gardner, probably not even next week. Uh, Lee Canning, I don't know, or just the assholes. But, uh, I mean, with that huge exodus we get of Diane and uh, and Tay Diggs' character, which, you know, cool addition, uh, and then a whole bunch of department heads, I think that they're going to have to... They will have to make a decision about whether or not th they actually have any sort of distinct culture to Lockhart Gardner at, at Floricagos. And I'll be curious to see if it's something they actually wrestle with seriously on the show or if it, or if they're just going to leave that as sort of depressing subtext. Well, especially if, um, if we have Alicia, if she does end up leaving to, to run and it winds up being Diane and Carrie. Now, of course, Carrie started out as her protege basically in season one. And, and I want to say part of season two, though maybe I'm, you know, not remembering that correctly. Uh, and so that, that there's that element to it as well. But, I mean, especially if Alicia's not there and you just have the two of them running things, is this just uh, Lockhart Gardner 2.0? Right, yeah, that's that's another sort of combination. And, and, and actually something that I was thinking about, uh, because I love the way that everyone treats her running as a foregone conclusion, even though she's been unequivocal about the fact that she really doesn't want to do it and she really thinks it's a really dumb idea. Um, it's it's got it that could be annoying, but it, it's almost Kafka esque. I I use that word in my review, and I get to use it again today because I'm a pretentious prick. Uh, it's almost absurd and surreal, and I sort of love that aspect. But I do feel though, like if they're gonna have her run for state's attorney, wouldn't it be better for her politically, everyone politically, if her and Peter were diver were divorced at that point? No, I don't think it would. <laughs> because so much of her image is uh, tied directly to him. So, no. <laughs> oh, America. You don't think that would send a message of, you can trust that we're going to be independent from each other and not influence each other's decisions because, you know, we, if anything, will have reason to be opposed? Yes, it might send that message, but it would also send the, I'm not with I'm not for traditional family values because I divorced my husband, even if he mm, was a jerk. Yeah, yeah, America. 
Uh, I almost did America there, but I didn't. Um, I appreciate their strength. Anyway, trying to think of other things happening this episode. We Carrie is let out this week. We were speculating as to how long they would dangle that, but I'm, it was fine for them to get rid of it this week. I, I love that how I love how awkward and yet sweet their hug was at the end. Yeah, it was absolutely adorable, and I I like that they comment on it. She's like, "This is the first time we've we've done this," and it's. The audience is the mega feels out in the audience for in that moment, at least based on Twitter and myself. And I like that they really play the sweetness of it, but also um, that this is a new level of intimacy. This experience has pulled them even closer together because I mean they're fighting about the firm while they're doing this, but all of that does not matter really when, in this moment. And I, I like that they don't negate one with the other mm -hmm. i agree uh, i think the last thing i want to mention is i feel like what they're building towards is dropping lamon bishop or finding a way out of that situation uh because it's just gotten too compromising and also because now that they've got diane there they've got enough business they don't necessarily need lamon bishop but uh if not i'm wondering where else they could be going with this because it's getting real dark it's been great i love it um and i think that would be fascinating and certainly, because, it it, like you say, it's getting very dark. And so it would be a positive way for them to move uh, Alicia and Carrie back towards white hat status. The only thing is that I don't feel like Lamont Bishop has former attorneys. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Uh, anyway, it, it's something to think about. And, um, and you know this this idea that you know they could ever be white hats again or have a separate culture. I feel like that's that is the central question of the season. But even besides the whole state's attorney thing, and uh, I'm very curious to see how how that'll play out. Also, I I like that last thing I'll mention. I I really like the way the very naturalistic way they folded Matthew Good into the cast and really not had any overt love interest notes happening there, even though he is dreamy. And there is opportunity there, but they're there. If they're doing that, they're doing it in an extremely long gamey kind of way that I really appreciate. Yeah, unlike their uh, not so subtle, you're divorced. I thought you were married. She left me after we we lost the child, the baby. You know, like that was very ham fisted last season. It's like eligible, eligible. Um, so <laughs> yes, they've certainly downplayed any of that stuff here, which is absolutely the right move. And I like that they are really showing this element to lawyer culture that we've not really seen because the one time we had somebody on the opposing council where they were in a positive maybe relationship or we, where we knew them in the state's attorney's office was with Carrie and he was incredibly bitter <laughs> towards all of our heroes at that <laughs> point. So it's nice to show this. It's absolutely an element of being a lawyer. You know both sides. You know the the attorneys you're going up against. And so uh, it makes, you know, I don't want this to affect our friendship. You know, it's it's a nice thing to be able to play. And they're again, like you said, they're doing a good job with it so far. Mm -hmm. I agree. Anyway, The Good Wife uh, continuing to be good. No, no big surprise. I review it every Sunday night or Monday morning or whenever I can get to it uh, on the site. And I did so again this week. And uh, yeah, always looking forward to doing that. And let's cap things off yeah. with Masters of Sex, I believe. Yeah, my last thing I have to say though about Good Wife is if they're if they're gonna write off Lamont Bishop or at least no longer have him as a client, before they do that, I just I need one more appearance from Wally Wallace Shawn as his super creepy 
uh, attorney. <laughs> so that just, we got to have him back once more. But uh, yes, I absolutely agree with everything you just said. Let's move on to Masters of Sex. The Revolution will not be televised. It's their season two finale. We see the return of Beau Bridges at the end of this episode. I think that scene may be the one that worked the least for me because it just was so expository and and uh, expo dumpy. It just really did not work for me at all. How, how did uh, how did that particular scene work for you? And on the whole, how did this finale work for you? I feel like they even knew it was kind of a shitty scene, and that's why they were like, you know, we got to punt this up somehow. Let's bring Bo Bridges back to be the one that he has this conversation with. Uh, I mean, I know they build up to it a little bit, but still, I couldn't really think of another way to save that scene. You're right, it wasn't good. Uh, there's a lot to like about this episode, even though I think, much like the rest of the season, it's a little bit scattered and sort of struggles for any sort of real thematic unity. I think that the having the scene of... I mean, I, possibly the most important scene of the entire episode is Libby admitting that she knows about the affair and has always known, if only subliminally, which I feel like... I, I kind of felt like that was coming. It wasn't a big shock, but it was still really, really nice to hear. Yeah, it really helps uh, shape her a bit more. And, I mean, it's, again, it's a very monologue kind of scene, but because she's expressing something i mean she's not a character who would just express this in another moment she wouldn't just tell you know bill's mom this or something so it needed to be a situation where she would open up to someone so i think it worked with you know with robert and uh with her just sort of looking at herself in a new way i really like how it the light that it casts upon her various scenes with Ginny all season because there have been many very uh, friendly and like we in this episode, you know, even I really, mm -hmm. I think that's a much more fascinating relationship and friendship when you know that she knows. Mm -hmm. And again, like this is the kind of relationship that the show can do with so much nuance and have so many uh, interesting performative layers that it's too bad when other aspects of the show are more ham fisted or more blatantly expository or more sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge in terms of the way they use historicity or whatever. It's it's almost, again it's like you're watching multiple shows at once, uh, particularly everything involving Kennedy. Like I know that because of the time period, you need to have people sitting around watching Kennedy inauguration footage or speech footage or whatever. But there, I didn't it feel like we've done that fifty thousand too many times before. Well, I think the main thing for me is just that that just that scene and that sequence with Austin just really highlights how much I think they don't know what they're doing with that character and <laughs> and with Artemis. I want to say is I want to say the character's name is Flo, but I think I could just be making that up. Uh you might be. We can just keep calling her Artemis. I mean because I think she's I think she, that character she is very interesting and I think that she has been consistent throughout the season and how the, how that storyline is developed. But I think Austin has not. And I think the show's treatment of those scenes, what the show thinks is funny and thinks is serious and thinks is interesting and worthy of discussion has been all over the place. And so when you have like his, hey, maybe this woman who's extorting sexual uh, favors from me and forcing me to have sex with her to keep my job, maybe I, she, I can take her on my arm so I can get to this cool party. I'm like, is he... What? What? Yeah. And also, why are we watching this happen? Like, what is compelling 
about this relationship right now. Other than that, it's kind of funny that she's so much smarter than he is. Yeah, everyone's like, oh, secret hidden depths. Except that you've made her an ab abhorrent person. So I don't care if she secretly is super smart and comes from a family of very smart, very wealthy people. I, I don't care because she's extorting sexual favors from an unwilling person. Well, that's another angle anyway, but I, I don't need to get into the Kate Kolzig empathy matrix today. Um, <laughs> so we, we don't need to get back into that rabbit hole. We're already going to be doing that later. But um, other things about this. I mean, like I said, there, like especially that opening montage, there's a dizzying amount of sex in this show, which is which makes sense because, you know, the subject matter. But it's it's it is frustrating how how nuanced and how sensitive those depictions are and how brave a lot of that is. And yet there's just other aspects of the show that just fall totally flat and just feel so confused tonally and thematically and everything else. And for every moment that shouldn't work, but does like the, despite my complaint earlier, I did like the dream sequence with, uh, with Michael Sheen and Lizzie Kaplan as Jackie and, and, uh, and John. And then of course, Libby in the red dress. That was actually kind of striking and cool uh, although the opposite of subtle, uh, there's other stuff that should work. It just doesn't, uh, like some of the Lester and Betsy Brandt stuff, uh, was just a little bit much for me. I don't know if that was just me though. I liked it. I thought it worked well. Um, but, and again, it ties in with this exploration of different types of relationships that they've been doing in this past, uh, few episodes. But, you know, I think this is something where season two has really struggled, or at least it's been, uh, it's had to deal with the realities of being a true-ish story. Because I think certain of their supporting cast um, have been really very much the strength of the show. And so earlier in the season, we have all this great material with Lillian, but then the character dies. Because I don't know if that's if she's a, based on true character or, or a creation of the so. series. But for whatever reason, that character dies and then is uh, like a bookend to that chapter of their life. And then they cut, jump forward a bunch of time. Um, and actually, I guess they jump forward later. But anyways, still, that that those that arc I thought was absolutely beautiful and very interesting in the first part of the show. But it does, it's not a season-long thread because of how they're structuring their time. And then the stuff with Coral was really very fascinating uh, with Libby, but again, it's like a series of episodes, and then it's gone. We have a couple, a little bit of a gap before Libby has something interesting again with Robert. You know, the way that some of these really um, very interesting for me. Again, I keep saying interesting. Uh, supporting characters have have come together has been has been a strength for the show, but there's not a through line of the season aside really from Bill and Ginny's relationship and just watching how it um, morphs over time. And I mean, even, even Betty, we stopped spending any time with Betty. She couldn't even be a through line of the season. And I think that's really taken away from the uh, satisfaction of an episode like this with the, what we should be feeling if in a finale, because we don't have that traditional culmination of, a season's worth of development or exploration of a character. Mm -hmm. And also now that you've talked about how their relationship has morphed over the course of the season, has it morphed over the course of the season? If you really think about it, like they're basically at the, at exactly the same place they were at the beginning of the season where 
they're not really acknowledging any overt feelings. They're just sort of, they're applying themselves to the study and that's it as they see it. Like that hasn't really advanced over the years that this season has been set in. Yes, it has. They've they've established that they have, that they had an affair or are having an affair that they're also doing. They're also getting research out of it, which is why they haven't stopped, but they've, they're not pretending that that's not what they're doing. Which is something different. I, uh, yeah, I suppose there was a rhetorical pivot, sort of, but it didn't feel like a profound revelation. And and it certainly, they made a point about the fact that, it, that they didn't actually do anything about it. I forget whether, I forget where, what show I watched where it was stated that self-awareness didn't make people behave any differently. That was last week. It was Masters of Sex. There you go. And we and that was, you know, a, a, a very, that was sort of maybe even the thesis of the of the season, if you could say there was one. But, I mean, I feel like the interesting stuff, the really interesting stuff in their life comes with, uh, how can I say this without spoiling life? <laughs> I feel like <laughs> the more interesting material with Bill and Ginny and Libby comes with when they all eventually acknowledge what's going on and then move forward from there. Because then you're going to get into some really complex stuff. Yeah, and I'm hoping that that's going to come soon. Um, you never know. Uh, with but with time jumps, you know, with season premieres can easily come time jumps. So I would not be surprised if that's where we go next. I guess. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on the season? Uh, no, I feel like it. It was it was doing so well to eclipse last season, and now I feel like it's about on par. Yeah, I would need to reflect back on season one a bit more to to rank the two of them. But certainly it's had some absolutely wonderful arcs and performances and episodes. I mean, I still think that episode three, uh, the fight, is absolutely one of the best of the of the year. And uh, yeah, it's it's I think it'll be in the conversation of my top like 20. But with the way that's the the handling of some of these arcs in the end of the the show specifically the stuff with Austin that's been a real disappointment. I don't think it's going to be in contention for my top 10. How about you? No, I don't think so. Uh and since you since you mentioned Austin and weird supporting characters uh was not expecting a last minute vocal cameo from Ethan. <laughs> Such a fun little. Huh, the show does remember him. Nice. <laughs> that worked for me. Yeah, I didn't really have a problem with that. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, what wins your week in drama? I will. I'll give it to the Nick this week because I feel like that's probably the best they're going to do this season. And uh, yeah, I think I will too. It was just fun. It's nice to just have a fun one. I mean, there's it's many things as well, uh, many other things as well, but it's certainly energetic and fun. So I'll give it to that one. Um, and now a few show notes before we go to our DVD shelf with Mike Warby talking about Six Feet Under. You can find a post up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV, the premieres, the pilots, the finales, all of it. Um, you can also like us on Facebook to follow the goings on at Sound on Sight TV as well as Simon and myself. You can send us an email, theteleverse at gmail.com. We have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed up in iTunes. We would love any ratings or reviews there. It's been a while. It'd be nice to, to maybe hear from some newer listeners. You can also find us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Simon, you are? At Sucker Howell. And what is our question of the week? Uh, well, since we're talking about Six Feet Under this week, I'm wondering if people have sort of a pet HBO series that that they feel like maybe have slipped through the cracks or doesn't get talked about much anymore. For instance, I was thinking about Big Love the other day, 
and how for for a couple of seasons that was a pretty interesting show until it went totally off the rails but it's amazing how it's just totally disappeared from you know cultural memory in general well we've already talked about two of my favorites uh the ones that i feel like are underappreciated and that's uh, on uh the that's the number one ladies detective agency and and rome but uh this is i believe this is actually a showtime show one of the ones i'm most interested in that, that seems to have also similarly fallen off the radar is brotherhood because that cast is ridiculous and uh, it seems like it should be interesting, but nobody seems to talk about it. And uh, it's certainly one that I look forward to at some point catching up with at the DVD shelf. It's always funny to see what people remember and what just totally is thrown into the oubliette. Well, let us know what you guys think and what, uh, what shelves maybe you guys are looking forward to. But for now, we'll take a break and come back with Mike Warby of Sound on Sight to talk about Six Feet Under. I refuse to sanitize this anymore. This is how it's done. Yeah? Well, it's whacked. What is this stupid salt shaker? Huh? What is this hermetically sealed box, this phony astroturf around the grave? Jesus, David, it's like surgery. Clean, antiseptic, business. He was our father. Please don't do this. You can pump him full of chemicals, you can put makeup on him, and you can prop him up for a nap in the slumber room, but the fact remains, David, that the only father we're ever going to have is gone forever and that sucks but it's a goddamn part of life and you can't really accept it without getting your hands dirty well i do accept it and i intend to honor the old bastard by letting the whole world see just how fucked up and shitty i feel that he's dead you want to be the alpha dog nate is that it you're coasting toward midlife with nothing to show for it. Now you want to come back and be the rock for this family to lean on? Fuck you. That is not what I'm... You want to get your hands dirty? You sanctimonious prick. Talk to me when you've had to stuff formaldehyde-soaked cotton up your father's ass so he doesn't leak. Jesus. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you just would have tossed him out with the garbage. It may seem weird to you, but there is a reason behind everything that we do here. We provide people with a very important and sacred service at the darkest time in their lives because maybe they don't want to make a spectacle of themselves because maybe they prefer to grieve in private. Why? Why does it have to be such a secret? It's nothing to be ashamed of. Dave, please. God, you know nothing. Nothing. <laughs> With the Televerse, this is Kate Kulzik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week on the DVD shelf, we're diving in with a show that I know is dear to many of our listeners' hearts, and that's Six Feet Under. And here to help us discuss it is Mike Warby, the editor of the game section at Sound on Sight. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hello, guys. 
Now, Six Feet Under is a show that has come up for us several times in the TV section and sound on site. It came up um, for some people in the discussion of Greatest Pilots when we did that theme, but the big place it came up uh, in the conversation is when the discussion for Best Finales came up. And that's probably, aside from just being very aware of this show from watching the Emmys while it was on, because um, at that time I did not have cable, so I had no way to watch it. That conversation around the, the finale of Six Feet Under is probably how I am most familiar with this show. Uh, mo- what made you want to talk about Six Feet Under? Um, Six Feet Under became kind of the the show that I was watching during a very um, dark time in my life. I was going through like depression and stuff. And six feet under obviously didn't help at all <laughs> in terms in in terms of my mood at the time. But it was um I think it was the most honest and candid um show on the human condition that I'd ever seen. And just without any sensationalism, you know, there's no mafia or uh, you know, supernatural elements or anything that's really the kind of grabbers of attention. It's just a, a, a show about a family and the people who surround the family. And just the things that people go through in life, and it's not a sugar-coated, um, it's not a sugar-coated series at all. It's all very honest. There's characters that go from likable to unlikable in a blink. It's just, yeah, just the honesty of it is what I fell in love with. I, th- I think, yeah, it's definitely the family at the center. You know, here the Fisher family is certainly one that I think some people will recognize. And I know that I've, you know, especially that mother character was a kind of character that we weren't seeing very frequently where she was, yes, she loved her family, but she was also very um, controlling and very self-sacrificing, but also the positive and negatives of that, I guess I'll say. And this was a show that did not back away from the positives and negatives of its characters. Um, I, I do have to say just to get it out of the way. I just, I, I kind of hate the show because <laughs> I, <laughs> I hate all the characters. Um, but I think what, really what it is, though, it's not that. It's this that there is a theme of self-involvement or thread of self-involvement to each of these characters that is becomes frustrating for me because the show does not feel the need to make them likable. They can be relatable, certainly, um, but I think most of these characters, there's no effort to make you like them. Um, I think they they trust the audience will identify enough with what they're experiencing to to see the honesty in it, and they don't they don't make these characters cuddly. I think that's part of the brilliance of the show is that it doesn't it like like I was saying before like you'll there's characters that you'll really like for a long string of time, and then you'll see them slowly going through a a, sh- a crappy period in their life or stressful period, and they become unlikable or they're going through personal issues, and like the show doesn't take any time to explain it. You have to just be like, you know, you, you know, because you've been following them and now you're seeing like the after effects of the things that have been happening to these characters. And then there's an upswing and they can kind of come out of it, but it takes time just like it would in real life. Yeah. And so I think what it came down to for me was that I just, I did not want to spend time with these characters as well performed (laughs) as they were. I mean, I respect uh, and enjoy pretty much this entire cast. I've liked them in, in several other projects. Uh, so I think they're, I know they're all very talented actors. Um, and certainly Alan Ball you know, has, has proven himself several times um, as a filmmaker and, and uh, you know, as a TV creator as well. But um, 
I think that was for me. I think the people who can identify with and really relate to and enjoy these characters, I can absolutely see why this is a show that they feel so passionately about. There is a passionate fan base out there, I think, for Six Feet Under, certainly while it was on, even if maybe it doesn't get listed with the best of TV for a lot of people. I think there is still a, a strong, it holds a strong place in people's hearts. But for me, I just did not, I didn't care about uh, Nate, for example. And so I had. I didn't want to spend time with him. And that made a lot of things more challenging for me. Um, Simon, where, where do you fall on Six Feet Under? Uh, this is going to get complicated. So I remember many years ago, uh, I watched, I started watching the show and I got to a specific moment in season two and we're going to, we're not going to be able to talk about the show very much longer without spoiling things, I don't think, but I got to a very specific moment where a specific character reappears and has a specific bombshell to drop. Uh, and at that point, I just decided it was misery porn and I didn't want to deal with it. And then I didn't deal with it for years until uh, I heard that it was ending. So I, I did catch the last few episodes. And then I didn't watch any of it ever again until we started plotting this shelf. And uh, so this time around, I watched the entirety of of the first three seasons and then about half of each of season four and five. Uh, so there is a little bit that I missed, but I, I will say this. I think that um, here are the things that I like about six feet under. I think that uh, it has an emotional intensity that is laudable. And I, I like that it does straight drama for its whole run. It doesn't do a lot of overt comedy, although there is a paintball episode, which was kind of surprising to me. Um, there aren't a lot of, uh, attempts at straight drama that are really any good at all. Um, and I feel like after Six Feet Under ended, there wasn't really an attempt at straight drama that was worth much that I can think of besides now the leftovers, by the way, episode 4.2 weirdly presages the leftovers complete with Justin through anyway. Oh yeah, Brenda. Brenda um, dates him for a So I, I, I admire the, yeah, exactly. And there's a rapture, anyway. Um, right, so, right. Yeah. So um, anyway, I, I admire the intensity and I admire its, um, its focus on it on its themes. And I think, uh, the narcissism that Kate complains about is absolutely there. Uh, especially in the first two seasons. Uh, season three was, to me, uh, a bit of a revelation on this watch because I, I do think it's such an improvement over the first two seasons in terms of not necessarily making the characters likable because they're too thorny for that. But I think that uh, Alan Ball and company did a great job uh, making these characters start to get more involved in each other's lives in a positive way so that even when, or perhaps especially when bad things happen, they do make an effort to get out of that sort of tunnel vision that they can get afflicted by, especially the Nate and Brenda stuff in, in season one and, and season two. And that to me made a huge difference. And uh, I think to me, season three is kind of the crowning achievement of the show. And I think the re we're going to get to the finale, I think more broadly later, but I, for what it's worth, uh, do I think it's like one of the greatest finale ever finales ever? I don't know, but I do think, in terms of keeping the spirit of the series, uh, it is most definitely one of the best finales ever. I think that it is the I the ideal finale for Six Feet Under, whether or not you think that is a good thing. <laughs> what I will say about the show uh, is that, that that I very much appreciated in what I watched is I had a very strong sense of who these characters were and why and what in their life had shaped them. That really helped 
when I was watching it. I wasn't able to marathon this the way I would have liked to to prepare for DVD shelf because I got so frustrated with the characters. But it, nothing seemed to come out of nowhere. And, and it was, you know, it's interesting to have a character. I mean, I connected much more with the, the David character um, than, than Nate, for example. I like that the show presents this struggle in him about his homosexuality and doesn't just resolve it right away, that it, it brings up these issues of, of religion and his upbringing. And it, it takes it takes years for the character to truly come to a level of acceptance that normally on another show, there'd be a very special episode. It would have an Emmy reel moment (laughs) and then the character would learn to love himself. And that's just not what happens on this show. And so that kind of commitment to, I mean, I do think the characters change over time, but it's a slow change. It's a struggle to change um, and to come to self actualization or self awareness. Maybe Um, I like that. They don't shy away from these different elements. I think there's a core to every person. I think there's a certain amount of things that you can change about a person, but at the center of them, there's a core and Mm -hmm. that is more or less not going to ever change that much. You know, it's going to be, that's going to be a part of a person for their life, you know? And you see characters fighting against that. Nate is a great example where he's trying, like he's a certain kind of person, but he he spends his whole, the whole series basically fighting to be somebody else. And that's one of the, I think, one of the most endearing things about his character. And there's other characters that have that about them as well, where they're, they have this core to them and they don't, they're not okay with that core. David is another example. He's not okay with being gay. He's not okay with the way his sexuality, you know, affects his life. So he tries all these things to try and not be gay and not let people know that he's gay and all this stuff, you know? And, And eventually people just have to come to terms with certain aspects of themselves and just accept parts of who they are rather than trying to make them into what society wants yeah and again i what i keep going back to is this show is very comfortable with you just not liking certain characters and the one that i have to point to because i think it's hilarious how just perfect of a uh, representation this character is uh, of a particular type of person and that's that's gabriel He's such a stupid shit. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's Claire's uh, high school boyfriend. And, you know, played wonderfully by Eric Balfour. It's exactly the kind. I mean, I, I, I've not seen him play other types of characters that I've particularly enjoyed. But if you want skeezy, you know, high school boyfriend guy, you know, there was a <laughs> span where Eric Balfour was your guy and he was going to be the right, you know, and it's very effective here. <laughs> they, they never, uh, they 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 introduce this guy in the pilot. You don't like him. He treats Claire like crap, um, and then they you know they they break up. But then they they bring the character back as can happen. How many times have you seen a, a friend or a family member just go back to this stupid? You just wish they could move on past this shitty ex that they keep feeling drawn to. But you know, yeah. It's, it's that high school relationship, and it's so well done. It's especially because of what happens that brings him back yeah. to the family. Which are we? Are we going into spoiler territory, or we, are we? We, still we out may there? as well. Darby spoilers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it's okay. We'll say spoiler territory. We're in now. Uh, when his little brother accidentally shoots himself with the gun, and that's a pretty, you know, emotionally challenging situation. So if an ex came back to you with that kind of situation, I think it would be tough to turn them away. Mm-hmm. Well, but yeah, but he's a strong presence 
for in her life and you know they get back together yes but then it's also i mean it's it's seasons of of them uh and, and things don't get better you know things it's not like they get back together and that they can f- fix each other there's very little fixing of each other on this show well you're indicating one of the things that i actually like best about the show which is that uh, and it's really striking especially at the end of the show's run characters show up and they rarely just have a little stint and then they're gone. Um, and that's, and I appreciate that because that tends to be the way it works in life. You know, like a perfect example would be Olivier, uh, Claire's art teacher. And I'm not defending Claire in art school because holy crap, does that waste a lot of our time. But, um, but that guy, you know, when you, when you initially meet that character, you think, okay, this, this is a character who's maybe two notes I am familiar with. We're going to get them out of the way, and he'll be here for maybe six episodes. Then he's there periodically for the entire rest of the series, and and that's starting in season three, I believe. Yeah. And, but it makes sense for him to be around because he has he's enmeshed in people's lives in certain ways, and I and he's even there in the finale, and it makes sense for him for him to be there. That being said, I I do want to get my major, my principal complaint about the show out of the way, and this is not uh, something that you. This is definitely something you, that you can say about everything that I've seen that Alan Ball has ever touched. The guy does not do subtlety ever. Uh-huh. He is no, he is a fan of sledgehammering every idea into your brain until it's lodged there for eternity. And that means that some of the show, uh, you know, particularly when you get to the end, uh, can be very powerful. And it has some some really indelible moments. But it also sometimes it just doesn't know when to let things the fuck be. For instance, uh, a perfect crystal clear example in my mind is when um, there's a scene of Nate and Maya, his daughter with Lisa. Uh, we haven't even talked about Lisa yet. Um, and and he's asked whether Maya can swim and whether she likes to swim. And he has this moment of, yeah, she likes to swim. And then he thinks of Lisa's drowning and he has like quick like quick cut flashbacks to the beach like dude we don't need the quick cut flashbacks to know that he's upset about about the drowning like we yeah sometimes alan ball and company you just need to let it be and i i had that thought many times over the course of the show's run particularly with brenda brenda can also can often feel like she's just the voice of um the writer Mm -hmm. and uh, like especially um when she goes on her long monologue, she sometimes just feels like she's the voice of, of whoever's writing the episode and whatever they're trying to say. So, yeah, in that sense, I can see sometimes um, what you mean. I still remember that scene of her like when she first goes back to school and she sits in the professor's class and hasn't read the book. Just the the hand of the writer was even more transparent than usual there. And I think that's... Um, there are times when it when it's very effective, and there are times when maybe it is less so. Um, for me, it tended to be less so in general. But I, but again, this is not a show afraid of pain, and and that's what I think is um, gets a lot of criticism maybe from the show. Like like you said, Simon, uh, this is just sadness porn, um, in and these characters going through. I mean, how many people in their lives die? I mean, it seems like it's way higher than average, but the the way that it, it just embraces this tone and doesn't back away from that you know i there's room there's space in our uh television viewing for a show that is this interested in grief well and i i think that also another reason i i wanted to point out season 3 is because it does it 
eventually the shit does hit the fan um, in in a way that people who've seen the show will know about. But there there are these stretches of the show where things things aren't going terribly for everyone, and those to me are, are my favorite stretches. The the these sort of these sort of breathing points between the horrible traumas that crop up where people are making an effort and people actually smile and laugh and have relatively accessible things happen in their life. And it, I wish the show didn't feel the need to goose the drama quite as often because you're already dealing with people who work in a funeral home. You're, you've naturally got, you know, people who come in, we, you know, we haven't even mentioned the opening deaths, which happen in almost every episode, although not all of them. You know, you've got death in literally every episode. You don't need to necessarily uh, amp. You know, you mentioned, Mike, that the show isn't sugar-coated, but occasionally it is shit-coated. And sometimes <laughs> sometimes it gets to be a little bit much. Although that being said, I think that my favorite section of the show is the section that deals more directly with with uh, Lisa, played by Lily Taylor, who does a, a fantastic job. Uh, and sort of the fallout from her death. Uh, that to me is where the show is at its strongest. Yeah, that is the the fact that that Nate spends the the majority of season three. There's been a time jump at the end of season two, and um, he spends the majority of season three trying to make himself into this guy who wants to be um, settled down with a, with a wife and a kid and. He starts. He, tra- he tries to change himself so much um, for Lisa, and particularly and, this wife, like this particular wife. Yeah, like it's and it's yeah, because she has a lot of expectations from him, and he thinks like being the kind of person that he was in the past. He thinks is like a childish thing, and he needs to grow up and all this stuff. But he needs to sort of uh, he comes to terms with this acceptance that maybe this just isn't uh, where he was meant to be. Maybe this just isn't the situation for him. But before they can ever come to terms with that, Lisa's taken away from him and he never gets to settle that. And I think the the way they do that is actually a kind of a stroke of brilliance because they don't immediately tell you what what's happened to her. They just kind of um, – she disappears and we don't know where she went and Nate's just kind of left with his mixed feelings about, on the one hand, uh, I miss her and she's my wife and the mother of my child. But on the other hand, like, holy crap, am I happy to be out of this relationship? Yeah, having dropped in and out of the show t- for this for this episode, that I got to the you know the the middle of uh, or the end of season three in my in my drop in, so I was like, wait a second, what's what's going on? Because you know b- the, my familiarity with the show was very much I knew about the central family, I, and I knew about Brenda, and from the pilot, it's clear that Brenda and Nate are a forever couple for this show. Um, so when, when I get to, um, you know, the, I'm dropping in on season three and I was like, wait a second, Lisa, oh, I vaguely remember her. Wait a second. She's like, he's obsessed because mm. she's missing and dead and they have a kid and holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Did you- the way that the disappearance and eventually um, the, the, the final frames of season three, when, when you finally see her death card and there's, like sort of an extra swell of music, I think is actually the most poignant moment of the series, even maybe even more than anything in the finale. That being said, I don't, I really don't think that I or we needed the, to resolve her death as we do at the very, not until one full season later in the, at the very end of season four for a show about death. It seems like Alan Ball and company are really uncomfortable with ambiguity. Uh, To a certain extent, I would agree with you. I think, 
that I think that could have been that might have been stronger if, if it was just left as an unanswered question. But I think the resolution they came up with was really satisfying, and I think they were actually building it um, earlier on, especially with um, David's connection with uh, I guess you'd call it his his step niece or mm-hmm. I don't know what you what you would call her, but he Michaela. has that connection with it. Yeah, with Michaela and. They build that connection for a long time, and you don't really know why, but it's because they've been planting that seed all along. So I don't think it was a sporadic last-minute decision. I think it was like oh, it a, it definitely wasn't. No, yeah, it was it was deliberate. I I wasn't sure if that's what you were getting at, but it's it was very very deliberate. It, it was it was definitely deliberate. I think that my issues with it were a that um her the way the the apparent manner of her death was just kind of haunting in its mystery. And I really appreciated that. And also the actual reveal when it happens is handled in a very whodunit-y kind of way that just comes kind of out of left field for me. It's a little ham-fisty in those final minutes of that episode. Yeah, all he needed was just to turn the lamp and shine it on his face. It's like he's become a cop for like (laughs) half a scene and this guy (laughs) immediately breaks and is like... No, that's not what happened. Well, maybe something happened. Well, here's maybe what happened. No, it didn't. Dead. It's just like, it's very jarring. It becomes a different <laughs> yeah. show for that scene. And because this is a show, you know, like like we've said, this is not a subtle show most of the time, but this is a show that deals with loss and that deals with uncertainty about how someone felt, you know, they're they're all struggling with how they're, the death of the father in, in the pilot and how that, you know, their relationships with him. And we see all these characters that we come in and did they know that I cared about them? Like all this different stuff. It's, it seems to be comfortable with some level of uncertainty, you know, or just the fact that death is a final, there, there's finality in death and that you don't get to ask the question that you wanted to ask, that kind of a thing. Um, and then here it's like, no, we better give it, we better give a specific answer to what happened. And then, in case we weren't sure if this guy actually did anything or not, let's have him kill himself because he's so guilty. I mean, come on. <laughs> I think the decision to have him kill himself was um, just so we don't have to now deal with the the trial yeah. aspect of it. Because it's like, we've already spent so much time with this plot line. Now we'd have to be going to the final season with the trial plot line. And of course, Nate has to be a parent for that and yada, yada, yada. I think they just want it to be over mm-hmm. and kind of put a cap on it and just say, okay, let's move on. Um, but I think in that sense, I, just one thing, just as an aside, I really love about the show is that they plant seeds, uh, very early that they don't come to fruition for a long time. And like, that's what that Michaela girl, why is she so important? Why are they building this relationship? And of course, again, with, um, Nate's, uh, diagnosis in season two, mm-hmm. when, you know, that, that is very telling. That's a very, that's a very early seed planted that of course eventually leads to his death um almost three full seasons later i still remember when nate died uh because people freaked out they're like there's only two episodes they why they did they killed him before the finale uh yeah so it was very surprising to people i mean it makes the, the way they handle it i think makes sense and ties in with some of their other themes but i mean there was i remember there being an uproar in the uh in the fan community for the for the show when that happened um and maybe talking about nate's death can bring us into a couple other things we have we're almost out of time we've barely talked about any of the performances uh do, <laughs> do you guys have uh one who's st- a character or a performance who stands out uh to you 
Well, I think to me quickly, uh, Keith and David are really the only couple on the show who are really worth rooting for over the course of, of its length. And there's a reason that they're, uh, the only ones who are intact for most of that length. And I think, um, both actors do, uh, do a fantastic job. I have to, but I, I have to say though, if I had to pick out one particular favorite from the whole cast, it would be Rachel Griffiths, who I think is, uh, really tremendous in what could have been such an unbearable, horrible, un, like unwatchable role. Yeah, that's true. That's very much true. The the role lives and dies on her. My favorite character is Nate, but probably the best performance is David. I would say David's got the strongest performance in the series. Michael C. Hall. Yeah, Michael C. Hall, who obviously most people know from Dexter, but he, he beats the piss out of his Dexter role here. Like, <laughs> Dexter is, when we were talking ham-fisted, Dexter's probably the, one of the most ham-fisted shows I've ever watched and contrived, you know, shows I've ever watched. But, um, yeah, the on, yeah, the, the striking, striking, um, honesty and vulnerability of the David character is, is completely sold by Michael C. Hall. Like, he is David. Every moment you see him as David, he's David. Like, there's no Michael C. Hall there at all. It's just, he just envelops that character. Uh, the one who, I probably most enjoyed. I, I think that each of the performances, I, I the issues I tend to have are not with the performances usually, but with the the, the writing maybe. Um, but I did really enjoy Lauren Ambrose as Claire. I I, I even liked her on uh, Torchwood Miracle Day. As terrible as that character was, she found a way to make that character interesting and fun. And so it was it was entertaining for me to go back and watch her with a much better written and more nuanced and more interesting role when she's going through her like bitchy hard school phase it's like oh come on claire you're better <laughs> she, <than it." laughs> she can be also very insufferable at times oh, that yeah. character that character the pretentiousness and the oh man when she's uh arguing with russell over her art and oh my god yeah she's there are times when she's insufferable. Sorry, did I mention that uh, Rachel Griffith's role was insufferable? Because if anything, Ben Foster's role is even more thankless. And he, he has some really, he has, he's, Russell can be hard to take sometimes, but he does have some, some good episodes and some good scenes. And that's a credit to Ben Foster, who, of course, has gone on to do many great things. Ben Foster is one of my favorite working actors today. I think anything, I'd watch Ben Foster in anything. I, I fortunately only saw a handful of the Russell uh, episodes, but... I will not disagree with anything you guys have said. Um, I will say one of my favorite moments in the series, I think I have to give to um, Francis Conroy, uh, because Ruth on Ecstasy <laughs> is a beautiful thing. <laughs> Since you mentioned Ruth, I, I feel like I also need to throw out a bit of love to James Cromwell, who's definitely the best sort of late show addition. Uh, I mean, the supporting cast and the guest cast is huge huge as you would expect from a show like this there's even a bizarre cameo from josh radner at one point but um but I, I think he's one of the characters you get most quickly attached to especially because most of the fishers hate him so much which makes him instantly likable <laughs> um i guess i guess as we're we're, we're coming up at the end so I, I think there's probably two things we should get to what's my dog did you guys get to that episode that's or, my dog yeah that's my dog that's my dog there we go did you guys yep. get to that one? That's probably the most iconic episode of the series just because it was such a divisive episode. What were your guys' thoughts on that one? I think by now the finale is probably better known. But yeah, that I finally watched that episode for the first time on this watch. And if anything, it wasn't quite as horrible as I've been led to believe uh, because it's, it had been so hyped up as a, as a thing. But it's definitely uh, very effective. And you mentioned that the show doesn't like to sweep things under the rug quickly. And I think that the way 
the that trauma reverberates for David for the entire rest of the show is uh, is is feels very true to life to me. I legitimately thought he was going to die in that episode. I legitimately did. At the end, I thought it was. I thought they were actually going to have him die. Like that's yeah. how effective that episode was. Uh, even though I was watching it years later, I didn't watch it during the initial run. But yeah, I definitely thought that David was going to die in that moment. Then when they go to the prison and he confronts his he confronts the, his attacker, it's just a surreal. It's a very surreal scene, and I was sort of dreading that because of the different ways it could have gone. But um, I'm curious um, what you're, if you guys have any thoughts about that scene and, and how it eventually is air quotes resolved. What I loved, what I loved about that scene is that there's no. Um, you would expect in most in most uh, shows or films. When a character who's gone through that sort of trauma confronts his um, attacker, there would generally be a sort of um, a coming to terms or a comeuppance or whatever you want to call it, right? Some sort of arc there. But really, David doesn't get anything out of the guy, and I think that's so such a such a shocking but true to life fact about that kind the kind of sociopath, um, psychopath personality that would do something like that. He doesn't have any remorse. He doesn't care at all. And he's he just flippantly switches back and forth between um, emotional capacity and completely lacking in emotional capacity, just like a typical sociopath. He doesn't give a shit at all. He just wants to know what David can do for him. Yeah, and it doesn't... Usually you either see a defiant um, reclaiming of identity or power over the attacker or the, the attacker... Um, reasserting their dominance. <laughs> I was dreading it going one of these two ways, and I'm so glad they went a completely other way. Yeah, because life isn't simple, and that's like really the defining message of the show. I will save time by saying that I agree with both of you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to this the finale then before we, um, before we run out of time here. Uh, I will say, what, this is one of those episodes that when people talk about greatest finales, it tends to come up, but I don't think they usually mean the whole episode it's sort of like when people talk about the sopranos they almost never mean the whole episode they mean the last shot and here i think people usually mean the last closing sequence um much of this episode the finale episode i thought it was fine but it didn't really wow me um some of some of claire's um like her just sobbing and you know, like oh i can't leave all, all of this stuff i just it seemed like it didn't make sense to me but i wasn't sure if that was because i had you know, been only seen a handful of episodes. So maybe there was a lot more I had missed why she wouldn't be just happy and excited to be leaving as well as she'll miss her family, but she can always visit. Um, but I, I, even so, even only having seen a handful of episodes, um, in, in, just a summary of the series, that last closing sequence was still, it's just, it's very well done. Um, some of the make makeup, maybe not, um, but the concept of it, the song choice, it's all. I think it's very effective. Well, I think you can see the iconic um, influence of that scene, especially in uh, even even to, even today. Um, I was at my brother's the other day, and I was watching an episode of I don't know some stupid reality show, and they 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 of course chose the song uh, "Breathe Me" by Sia as the song for the sad moment. Mm-hmm. So that song has become so synonymous with just sadness and devastation just because of that scene and that sequence is i think the the crowning achievement of the series hands down it is just like the 
it, it might have seemed early on predictable that um, a show about death would end with all the characters dying, but never, no one would, I don't think anyone would have imagined uh, the way that they would have done that, where they actually, they don't just kill them, they give you the rest of their lives. And that is, that the, the, they managed to accomplish so much in such a, I think it's about five or six minutes, they just say, here's everybody, here's who they are, and here's what they're going to be for the rest of their life. And now they're dead one by one. It's just like it is the emotional powerhouse of I've never seen anything that is that has been that devastating um, to me in hindsight. The first time I watched it, I was just so shocked. But the, any consequent time I viewed that scene, it's just it, it strikes me like a like a sledgehammer of just emotion. It's it's the most I can't think of anything that even rivals it. Uh, I, I, I definitely see that point of view. Like I said, I, I think that that closing montage in particular, that montage is six feet under. That is six feet under in six minutes, for better exactly. and worse. And I think that the worst thing you can say about it is that it's it makes the whole show be about the end. It makes the it or rather it reflects the way the whole show sees death as the be all and end all, which is which is which both like I said makes for some very powerful TV some of the time, and I think makes the show a little bit more simplistic and sort of broad than it means to be uh, a lot of the time, or maybe than I would like it to be a lot of the time. Uh, that being said, it is definitely it, it's it is the ultimate ending for the show, and I, I think and I had. I had some philosophical issues with it the first time I saw it, but rewatching it now, having seen more of the show, I really, it's impossible to imagine a more fitting end, despite the makeup. <laughs> yeah, it's a 2020 hindsight situation. Of course, this is how they would end, but I distinctly, this is another one, I distinctly remember when this aired, nobody saw that ending coming. Every It surprised and pleasantly so. Uh, everybody that was talking about the show, for the most part. I'm sure there's somebody out there who didn't like it, but on the whole, the reaction was very surprised and very positive, and I think it's it still is one of the more memorable because it's something we say on the Televerse frequently. Uh, finales are hard, um, and so it was a very like you say, Simon. It's a very fitting end to the show. Uh, do we have any final thoughts on Six Feet Under? Any other characters we want to mention or moments or what are what are our final thoughts? Two quick things. I really want just I'll do them real real fast. I, th- I still think in general the last few episodes with Nate's death and the, the, the fallout are are a really nice last arc for the show. Uh, and that leads me to my second point, which we didn't discuss, which is the preponderance of dead people talking, particularly dead family members, uh, including Richard Jenkins, who pops up throughout the whole run of the show and is generally delightful when it happens, even though the first couple times you're like, I'm not sure about this device. I do wish that they'd used more Lily Taylor after her death, though. Um, I'll say that uh, I we haven't mentioned him yet, but I really did enjoy Rico, uh, Freddy Rodriguez, uh, and, until he cheats on his wife. Uh, he, <laughs> he he was like the the sole bit of comedy or lightheartedness on the show, so it was very nice to be able to key into that character to get a, a relief from some of the the drama help happening elsewhere. So I I did very much enjoy that character for mo- most of. Most of the run. Yeah, Federico, yeah, he he also had this intensity to him that belied that, which is kind of cool because, yeah, he's often very lighthearted. But when he does get passionate about something, he's like fire and brimstone pointing the finger in the face. Yeah, anyway, he's a great character. I can't believe we made all this time without even mentioning him. Almost didn't talk about him at all. Um, yeah, I guess I'll just say the opening sequences, I love, I love that aspect of the show um, and how they became like a – 
like every time an episode opened after a certain point, you're starting to be like, you're looking around. It's like final destination. You're looking around for all the ways this person could possibly die. Just a chain of events that slowly lead to one person's random death. I love I love that aspect of the show anyway. <laughs> well, um, it's, you know, this was a seminal show while it was on. It was very interesting. Like I said, I remember it from that theme song and that opening introduction, which are lovely, by the way. Thomas Newman. Um, so it, it certainly was a big gap in my HBO awareness. Um, and so I'm very glad to have filled it in at least somewhat. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on to Talk Six Feet Under with us. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Mainly on Sound on Site. I do still do some writing on my forums and stuff, but uh, most of my blogs have been stagnant since I joined the site. So, <laughs> yeah, mainly in the game section on Sound on Site, occasionally in the other sections, whenever, you know, something comes up that I can contribute to. And on Twitter? Uh, I am Art House Mike, the most pretentious name I could think of. <laughs> well done. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on, Mike. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.